I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. Those are verses 16 to 19 of Psalm 55, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, March the 12th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the book of Deuteronomy. Today we're in the 11th chapter, verses 18 to 28. The gospel lesson is John 4, 1 to 26. This is a Samaritan woman at the well. And then we're continuing to look at the comparison between Jesus and the high priesthood in Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. So the, the, the argument that Moses is making, he's, he's just instructing them and telling them how to live in the land now. He's telling them what to do to maintain faithfulness with the Lord. And there's only one way to do that, and that is to fill your life with him and fill the land with him. And so he says, therefore, lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontless between your eyes. And so there, there are various um, Jewish phylacteries and things like that, that that they wear so that the, they are bound to the word of God. The word of God is bound to them. And so there, there are certain uh, sects of Judaism that practice all of these things and so what they're doing is they're binding themselves by the word of god by binding it on themselves in that way and and so there there's various visual and other tactile sorts of things that that they do in order to maintain faithfulness and connection with him he says you shall teach these things to your children talking of them when you're sitting in the house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise so there's not any time in life, no, there's no place that's not a good place to speak of these things and to teach these things to your children. It's, it's intended that, that the land itself is to be a place that's given over to the worship of God. And one of the ways we worship him is to, to be in his word, to teach his word, to talk about his word together. So there's worship that goes on when, when we pray together. There's worship that goes on when we study together. There's worship that goes on when we come together for worship. But all those things are intended to, to make him the center of life. And it's to be that way in the land, Moses says. The, the land is to be centered around the worship and the knowledge of God. And, and so it's always been intended that he would be central to life and that he would be the most important thing. He says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that's why you have the mezuzah that goes on, on a Jewish household on the doorpost as you go in. There's a little piece of the Torah in there. And, and so it's the first thing, the most important thing. It identifies the person as being a Jew, it, the people of God. And so we do the same things. We, we decorate our homes with, with different things. If you came into the office that I work in at the house now, what you'd see is that I'm just surrounded by art and all kinds of other stuff that, that has to do with the cross. I mean, there's a cross to my left and then the passage from Jeremiah on it. I know the plan, you know, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. There's another one above that from Lamentations 3.25. It's about hope. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. To the left, uh, even above that, be still and know that I am. And then there's a conquering lamb. And I said, there's all these things that people have given me over the years. And so when people come into the house, they see these things. And, and if they don't, 
already know us, then they would go, oh, you people are Christians. So it, it's that thing that we're to be surrounded by the Word of God. <clears throat> and he says, um, do put these things on the doorpost and on your house and your gates that the days that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. He, he says it's you, your occupation of the land is contingent upon this very thing, upon you continuing to be faithful to him. You don't get it, the land, just because you're the people of God, just because you your ancestors are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, you, you get the enjoyment of the occupation of the land based on your faithfulness. The covenant is not annulled, but your right to enjoy the benefit and a blessing of the covenant is tied to obedience. He says, for if you'll be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you'll dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads will be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. And that's exactly what they hear from Rahab when they send the spies into the land and and they lodge with her. That's exactly what it is. The fear and the dread of them had fallen upon the people of the land a long time ago because they heard what God had done for them in Egypt. Not because of anything they had done, but God was with them, and this God was on the march and on the move, and the people there were afraid of them because they were afraid of their God. But when they sent spies into the land, when Moses sent them in, they were afraid of the people of the land because they were much larger than them, but the people of the land knew the real thing to fear was not this bunch of people. No, it was the God of those people who had delivered them from Egypt. So they had more faith and fear in the Lord than the people did. The people who had seen all these things, these these guys had only ever heard of these things, and the fear and the dread of them fell upon them because of God. And so that's the, the just fascinating thing is the people of God who had seen all the things that he had done had great fear of the people in the land because they were so large. Well, were they as large as the Egyptians? I mean, they, physically they were larger than the Egyptians, but, but they couldn't possibly have been more numerous or more powerful. These are smallish nation states, nothing like Egypt would have been. And so that it, it but how often do we do the same thing? How often do do we misunderstand that how big our God is? You know, that's the thing is, is that other people would look and say, you know, if, if your God is as small as it seems he is, because you live in so much fear and so much doubt, then why would I be afraid of him? Why would I even want him as God? And I think sometimes that we, we do that very thing. We depend on our own selves too much, and we fail to, to fall at our, on our feet before the living God and ask him to, to do help us with the mission, which is exactly what he said that he was going to do, and exactly what he promised to do, if we would be obedient about being about the mission. And so it's the same thing Moses is saying here, is, is that if you'll just be obedient, God will take care of everything. You won't have anything at all to worry about. He says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. I mean, as simple as I can possibly be. And Joshua does the same things. He, he sets before them life and death. He says here, blessing and curse is what Moses says. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you don't obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. 
it's, it's, it, Moses is saying this is very simple stuff. All you got to do is accept the God of the covenant and believe in him and trust him and obey him. And if you do those things, things will go well for you. But if not, if you turn aside and you turn astray, then curses will fall upon you. I mean, it seems like a pretty simple, straightforward choice, doesn't it? But we're faced with that all the time. And so here in the in the passage um, from the gospel, we've got Jesus, uh, is, he's left, and they've gone out into the Judean countryside after the Passover where he conversed with Nicodemus. And so they've gone out into the Judean countryside, remember from yesterday, and there's baptism going on out there. And, and John's going to correct this a little bit. He says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, no, yeah, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples. So Jesus left Judea then and departed again for Galilee to go back home into the area where the, most of these guys are from, and he had to pass through Samaria. We didn't have to. Most Jews didn't. <laughs> they would avoid that left, that part of the country. They would go around Samaria because there was such enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans believed themselves to be the true Israel. They only have the Torah. They have the first five books. They don't have any of the prophets. They don't have any of the other books that do with the kings and all that. They had separated themselves from Israel way, way back. And they believed themselves to be in the place where the blessings were pronounced later on in Deuteronomy. And so they believed themselves to be true and obedient children of God. They believed themselves to be the true Israel, and they believed these others to have gone astray because they moved the place of worship to Jerusalem was one of the big reasons. But there's a, So they're a separatist movement, but, but they also exist on their own, and they keep themselves very pure. They, they do a good job in, in many ways following the law. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and we believe that to be sort of near modern-day Shechem, which is the place where Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, um, well, Jacob <laughs> had been. And, and it's a place that he, one of the first places that he purchased when he came back into the land, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, remember how long ago this is, this Jacob situation. I mean, we're talking about 1,500 to 2,000 years after that the events of that. And, and Jacob's well is there. It's there today, in fact. There's an Eastern Orthodox church built over the well, and it still gives water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's the, I had a professor in a seminary named Ken Bailey, and Ken had spent about 40 years living in this that region. And so he said that whenever he taught this passage to anybody in the region, he would say, let me read this, and you tell me what you think of her. And he reads only this part of it, and the people say, oh, she's a bad woman. Because women wouldn't have been there at midday. That's one of the big things is it's midday, and, and this woman is there. And that's not when women go to the well. They go early in the morning when it's not hot. I've seen this every time I've ever been anywhere in Africa. You see early in the morning, you see people going to the, to the public water places. And so here it's the same thing. And then because she's speaking to a man culturally, that's way out of line too. So people immediately know something about her. So therefore Jesus would have known something about her as well. And he answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. So he's speaking about himself, clearly speaking about himself. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? It is, literally, it's about 50 feet deep. Uh, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. That's a pretty big claim. It's true, but it's a big claim. I mean, this, this water has been coming forth from here for a couple thousand years. That's a pretty good well. That's a pretty good source of water. And so he's, she's, it's a legitimate question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? But at the same time, there's a twist and a turn in that, right? I mean, our father Jacob, not your father Jacob, our father Jacob. What's Jacob's other name? Israel the true Israel. And so she's, she's twisting a knife into this thing. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Our father Jacob. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to get water. Now, She's interpreting all of this in, in um, completely literal ways, in, in, in much the same way. If you think about this conversation and the previous conversation, the one with Nicodemus, you'll see a lot of parallels um, because it, it's, they're, they're both utterly confused by the things Jesus is talking about. He's speaking of, of heavenly things, and, and they both are stuck and bound up in the earthly things, and so they can't quite understand what he's talking about, but she wants it. Whatever this water is, this magic water, I want it so I don't ever get thirsty again, but also so I don't have to come here to get water because it would have been a place of pain, as we're going to find out in a minute, because she's a loose woman. And the other women wouldn't have wanted her to be at the well when they were there. That's why she's there midday. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. If you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband, what you've said is true. Well, I mean, she did. She, she said a very true thing. It, it was not all the truth, but it was true nonetheless. <clears throat> um, it, it, she very carefully, it, yep, that's exactly you, you, what you spoke is true. Yep, you've had a bunch of husbands and you live with a man now and he's not your husband. So it's true to say that you have no husband. It, it's the barest truth you could tell, but... But you can't hide this truth from him either. And and it, in that way, he's like, God, she's trying to put a fig leaf on. And Jesus says, no, 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 that ain't going to work. Because we've, there's more at stake than that. We've got to deal with this. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a prophet like Moses. Because that's the only promise in the five books of Moses is that God will raise up a prophet like me later on and when, from your brothers. And when he does, listen to him. So she's giving him, she's thinking, you, you might, you're a prophet. Are you the prophet? She said, I, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's going back to a religious conversation. Because it's safe ground. Jesus said to her, woman, see, again, he's calling this woman woman in the same way he called his mother that. And it's not disrespectful. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, the religious conversation is not really important. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. I mean, he's saying to her, you and your people are misguided. We, the true children of Jacob worship what we know and salvation comes from the Jews. I mean, it's a huge challenge to say everything you believe is wrong. 
You know, the things you believe are wrong, and the things you believe about the Jews is entirely wrong. I mean, your whole worldview is wrong and mistaken. And so it's a, it's not the way most people would go about witnessing. <laughs> but Jesus does, and he says the hour's coming is now here. It's time. You, you, we don't have time to mess around with these religious conversations. That, that you got to choose. The hour's coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And again, it's a similar kind of language that he used with Nicodemus in yesterday's lesson, or not a few days ago, I mean. The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That is one of the most remarkable statements anywhere in scripture because if you remember before we had the conversation with nicodemus we're told that that many believed in him for the signs he was doing but jesus for his own part wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of men so he wouldn't make a bold statement about i'm the messiah to them because he knew that they would ultimately reject him this woman he says i who speak to you am he i'm the messiah i'm the one you're looking for I'm the one that was promised. It's a remarkable thing. He knew what was in the hearts of people, and he wouldn't entrust themselves to them when he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. But when he comes to Samaria, this woman who most of us would look at and go, well, you know, she's trash. Um, Jesus tells her who he is. He hasn't even told his disciples who he is yet, and yet he tells this woman. It's an amazing thing that Jesus entrusted himself to her. He sees something in her, in her character, that even she can't see and nobody else can see, but Jesus does. And he entrusts himself to her with the messianic secret of his own identity. It's absolutely stunning and amazing. But, but he gives her promise of blessing. And then the price comes with truth. What you said is true, but you worship you know not what. So you don't know the truth. You, what you said was true, and so I appreciate the fact that you brought truth into the conversation. I'm going to bring more truth and that truth will save you. It will answer to all your dreams and your hopes. In the Hebrews passage, remember what I told you yesterday was, is that, that the writer of Hebrews is initially at pains to compare himself to anything in Judaism, to compare Jesus to anything in Judaism and say he transcends all of those things. And so if you put your trust in anything other than him, you're putting your trust in something that's less than him. So he says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset by weakness. In other words, he sins too. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. You can't just decide that you're a priest, is what he's saying. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, he's a greater high priest. He's appointed directly by God to, the, to be the high priest for all people. As he also says in another place, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and the Melchizedek priesthood would be one that doesn't have a beginning that we know of. We, we just know that, it, that he is a priest appointed by God, and we know that Melchizedek was a priest appointed by God because Abraham gave tithes to him. So he was the first priest, and he was the king of Salem. He was in Jerusalem. And so 
here we get this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's not after the order of Aaron. He's after the order of Melchizedek, who we don't know anything about his origin story, but we do know that he was received by Abraham, the father of faith, as a priest of the Most High God. So Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is the, is the argument the writer of Hebrews is making. Not after the Aaronic priesthood. No, he, he is after the order of priests that come from the man whom Abraham recognized as a priest. So it, it's a better priesthood. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And we see that in the garden when he's sweating like drops of blood. When he's asking, hey, if it, if it be your will, then let this cup fall from me. But if not, you know, so Jesus is, is at pain and agony there in the garden with these cries and tears that we're talking about to him who was able to save him from death. Though it's that clearly Garden of Gethsemane is the reference here. And he was heard because of his reverence. Reverence would mean his worship of God, his, his bowing the knee and offering, hey, this is what my will is, yet nevertheless not my will but thine. That, that's the reverence that Jesus shows, right? But, but when he says, was his prayer heard? Well, it certainly didn't look like it. It didn't look like it on the cross, but his prayer was heard. We know that because of the resurrection. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're called to believe, but we're also called to obey. And believing in him, one of the ways we show belief in him is obedience. It's walking in his ways. It's doing the work of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And what he commanded is essentially very simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are two straightforward things, but then there are a lot of details about how you do those things. But nonetheless, what, what we do is we have eternal salvation for all who obey him and recognize him to be that great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And therefore, we bow the knee to him and say, nevertheless, not thy, my will, but thine. 